This is Guns and Butter. And of course, we have to remember that uh, if you control Armenia, you not only basically uh, have the Turkey adjacent to it, you also have the access to Iran. Armenia traditionally has a very decent relations uh, with Iran. And considering uh, American-Iranian relations, or lack thereof, uh, you can see how this uh, former Soviet Republic, now independent state, becomes so important in geopolitical plans. And don't forget, Caucasus is the soft underbelly of Russia. Gaining control of Armenia, at least politically, you gain quite a bit of influence in the region, in uh, Caucasus. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andrei Marchinov. Today's show, the Caucasus conflict and global trends. Andrei Martyanov is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He was born in Baku in the Soviet Union, graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy, and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-1990s, he moved to the United States, where he worked as the laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group. He is a frequent blogger on the U.S. Naval Institute blog. He is the author of Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, and his latest, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. Andrei Marchinov, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you. You were born in Baku, the capital city of Azerbaijan, located on the western shore of the Caspian Sea. Could you describe this geographic area of Transcaucasia? This would include Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, wouldn't it? Roughly the area between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. When you were growing up, this area was part of the Soviet Union, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Can you describe this area? Well, it's uh, uh, geographically, it's very diverse in the sense that, um, for example, Georgia, which uh, has the access to the Black Sea, has a rather different climate from the climate of Azerbaijan, which is also partially in the mountains, but part of it, uh, it has desert, basically. And Baku, the capital city, which is a stunning city in its own right, and is located on the shores of the Absheron Peninsula, which is basically a desert. But Baku, uh, first, it's a huge city. It always was big in Soviet times. Uh, unlike, for example, compared to the capital cities of the BBC in Georgia or uh, Yerevan in Armenia, Baku was always a colossal industrial center from the late 19th century because of the oil. Uh, two uh, Prominent figures played a role in developing of, of Absheron oil fields. 
It was a famous Russian uh, uh, scientist and chemist and creator of the periodic table of elements with every elements which everybody uses. Uh, it's Dmitry Mendeleev. And the other guy was, of course, well known to everybody, Alfred Nobel, the guy who uh, instituted the Nobel Prize. These two people played a huge role in establishing the oil industry. And it has to be known that even before the discovery and uh, uh, developing of the oil fields in the United States of America, Baku alone, and the Absheron Peninsula, which is the fairly small part of Azerbaijan, was providing the half of the world's oil. But uh, eventually in the Soviet times, you know, uh, Baku and Azerbaijan played a huge role in the victory over uh, Nazi Germany and Axis forces because uh, it provided a lion's share of the fuel, you know, oil, crude, and everything what was needed for the uh, defense industry, for the Red Army. And it's, since then, it was developing nonstop, essentially. And it, the oil industry wasn't the only one which was uh, developed there. So it was extremely industrially developed area. Well, that's interesting because in past shows, when Baku was mentioned, it's always been in relationship to oil. Was oil uh, discovered there in Baku before the Middle East? Uh, yeah, I think so. The first wells in uh, Azerbaijan have appeared in, uh, if my memory doesn't fail me, in 1846. These were the first wells which were drilled there. So uh, there also was the first ever in Eurasia Institute of the Oil Engineers, which was constituted in Baku. So uh, I would say it's either concurrent or earlier than uh, Middle East. Could you tell us a little bit about, now, did you grow up in Baku? What was it like? Uh, let's put it this way. It was the happiest, uh, basically, part of my life. <laughs> and Baku at that time, in the 60s, um, it was already a huge city, way above one million uh, people, very spread. But uh, it was very international. There were incredible uh, diversity in terms of people who, were, who lived there. There were uh, obviously Azeris. There were Armenians, huge Russian diaspora. There were Jews. There were Germans. So you just name it. It was uh, uh, absolutely incredible uh, culture, which coalesced out of this. And uh, how to say it? I mean, the childhood was wonderful, you know. So it was a beautiful city even then, despite, of course, some areas of it being drab. And defining feature, and I actually wrote about it in my latest book, and I describe it, it was the constant mix of the uh, smell of the crude, interrupted oh. by the smell of the rhododendrons and other subtropical uh, uh, plants. So it was a very unique smell and very pleasant, I have to admit. <laughs> You know, so uh, today Baku is absolutely stunning, I mean, visually. It was beautiful then, but today it's just absolutely overwhelmingly beautiful. So how long did you live in Baku before you left? Well, uh, I lived for the first seven years there of my early childhood. Then we moved, but then, of course, I was going back every summer for three months and uh, sometimes uh, during winter. 
So basically, I never uh, severed any connection to the city. My grandparents were living there. And of course, in 1980, I entered the uh, Naval Academy there. So yeah, I'm kind of, you know, purebred Bakunian. Since we're describing uh, this geographic area generally, we'll need to include Nagorno-Karabakh, which has been a semi-autonomous region within Azerbaijan, inhabited by both Armenians and Azeris. Is this a fair description or far too simplistic historically? You have said that part of Nagorno-Karabakh, not all of it, is an historic Azeri land. Since you hail from that region, I'm hoping you can help us understand the political and ethnic dynamics of the Azeri-Armenian conflict. Um, it's a long history, let's put it this way. It goes way before the uh, even appearance of the Soviet Union. It goes way before the uh, Russian Empire got in there. But uh, Parts of Nagorno-Karabakh, what Armenians called it Artsakh, are definitely Armenian. But very substantial portion of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, historically now, could be considered Azeri parts. And that is why, uh, for example, even today, Nagorno-Karabakh is not recognized not only by the United Nations, in fact, United Nations recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as the part of Azerbaijan, but Armenia proper doesn't recognize uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. It doesn't want to basically uh, attach it to itself. So from the judicial point of view, it is a, a part of Azerbaijan. But there, are, there always was a significant Armenian uh, demographics. Uh, there and uh, at some point of time it actually reached I believe between something like 80-85% Armenians were dominating in terms of numbers living in Nagorno-Karabakh and that has created some issues these demographics Is it correct that there have been two wars between Armenia and Azerbaijan in recent history? The first war was won by Armenia and ended in 1994. The second war was won by Azerbaijan and ended in November 2020. Is that right? Yes, it is. The latest war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which ended uh, as I just mentioned in November of 2020, with a, a Russian peacekeeping force brought in, was very peculiar in the sense that Armenia knew an attack by Azerbaijan was coming, but that Armenia did not even conduct a full-fledged mobilization. There are reports and accusations of self-sabotage on behalf of of the Armenian government headed by Prime Minister Pashinyan. Did Pashinyan come to power in Armenia from a color revolution, Armenia's velvet revolution? Yeah, it's, uh, let's remember a simple thing. Armenia, as such, is an extremely unstable entity. And there are all kinds of Armenians. There are different Armenians. For example, there are Russian Armenians and especially the Moscow-Armenian diaspora, which is very different from Armenian-Armenians. And of course, there are huge diasporas in France, Armenian diasporas in France, and uh, uh, in the United States. 
just to give you an example, uh, Konstantin Orbelian, I believe, he was the chief of the uh, director or chairman of the Chamber of Commerce of the state of California in the 80s. He was the relative of the famous jazz musician from the Soviet Union. So, uh, I mean, Armenians are spread all over the world, but there are some, you know, places, obviously, which are specifically Armenian. So, uh, how to put it, the uh, issue with Armenians is that Many of those diasporas, they have a really different view on what Armenia is and how it should be. So Pashinyan, however, he is known to be what many people uh, using simplification say that he is a Soros creature. There definitely were a number of the movements within the political uh, dynamics of Armenia where people who are of foreign origins and having foreign interest in uh, in mind, ascended to the political power in Armenia. Pashinyan is such a figure. And Pashinyan, his uh, distinctive feature is his, uh, well, if not Russophobia, definitely there is no love lost between Pashinyan and Russia. And Pashinyan, in this case, is viewed by Russia, which is a huge player in Caucasus. He is viewed as the Western creature, as the person who promotes the Western interests, which, in the end, is correct. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about the diversity within the Armenian population worldwide. Yeah, it's that different effort. There is a huge Armenian diaspora in Syria. Uh, A lot of Christian uh, Syrian population are Armenians. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martyanov. Today's show, The Caucasus Conflict and Global Trends. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I've read that there are a hundred or more Soros-sponsored NGOs within Armenia. Did these Soros-sponsored NGOs bring Pashinian into power? Not only Soros, uh, the second largest U.S. embassy in the world, second only after the embassy in Baghdad, is the uh, American embassy in Yerevan, which tells you quite a lot. They have about, I believe, uh, I could be wrong, but don't quote me on that, but I believe it's 2,500 personnel uh, of American embassy in Yerevan. That tells you something. And the reason for that is, of course, because Armenia, while economically, basically no, no real serious economy on its own, and having only something between the three and four million of natives living in it, is a hugely important in terms of, you know, uh, practical geopolitics and controlling the, the Caucasus. And that is why West, in general, always wanted to see Armenia in some shape or form to be in the Western fold. And the only way to do it is what the only way West knows how to do it, be that through source and through American embassy or through any other NGOs, is to install the puppet which will do Western bidding. And Pashinyan is exactly such a person. Well, it certainly struck me as odd that before the... uh, American embassy in Baghdad was built, that the largest 
U.S. embassy in the world was in Yerevan, Armenia. How do you account for that? Well, because uh, you have to understand that any embassy of any country, but especially the uh, embassies of the United States, United States doesn't have diplomacy anymore as a craft. It doesn't have great diplomats. The uh, American embassies are basically technical outposts to provide visa services, which is called consulate services around the world, but primarily they are there for influences, political and ideological influences. And that's how they operated for the last 30 years. The last great American diplomats, the scale of James Baker or uh, the scale of uh, U.S. ambassador to uh, Soviet Union and uh, Jack Matlock, you don't have those people anymore there. Most of them, they are operatives of some form or another who uh, perform, uh, as any embassy does, you know, intelligence functions. But nowadays, for the last 30 years at least, American embassies are the centers of the geopolitical, ideological, and propaganda influences in the countries where they are located. Russia knows this uh, firsthand. So, and Armenia, yeah, it tells you quite a bit when you have the largest uh, embassy there. But why Armenia specifically? What's it about Armenia that attracts the largest U.S. base? Um, the Caucasus. If you will uh, remember in the 90s, there was a, a person who was responsible for the Caucasus affairs and generally uh, Russian affairs in Clinton administration was Strop Talbot. The guy allegedly was a specialist in Russia, but he was not. He was classic Russophobe. But he worked very hard to stir the trouble in Caucasus. And Armenia was focused because Russians have a huge military base there in Gyumri. And this Russian base, well, it was built to start with to counter Turkey and the southern flank of NATO from uh, expanding. And, of course, when we talk about this, we have to remember that uh, if you control Armenia, you not only basically uh, have the Turkey adjacent to it, you also have the access to Iran. Armenia traditionally has a very decent relations uh, with Iran. And considering uh, American-Iranian relations, or lack thereof, uh, you can see how this uh, former Soviet Republic, now independent state, becomes so important in geopolitical plans. And don't forget, Caucasus is the soft underbelly of Russia. Gaining control of Armenia, at least politically, you gain quite a bit of influence in the region, in uh, Caucasus. Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I see what you're saying about the strategic geopolitical location of Armenia. That makes sense. You told me that the trouble with Nagorno-Karabakh started in Armenia in 1988 with the ethnic cleansing of Azeris from Armenia, which then initiated an atrocity in Sumgate by Azeris against the local Armenians. You say that it's an extremely complex story. How can listeners have an understanding of this volatile area? Or more specifically, what makes this area so volatile historically? Um, it's a combination of cultural factors 
of nationalism and of course very troubled uh, history in the area with the with Turks committing uh, Armenian genocide which has been just recently uh, recognized by the United States but which is a known fact and judicially uh, recognized by Russia because it was Russian army in World War One which was freeing uh, those areas of Turkey or Empire Roman Empire and uh, the atrocity was horrendous. Some numbers are varied there, but there's something like one and a half million Armenians which have been uh, basically killed by Turks at that, uh, at that time. So it's a very long story. It goes deep into the uh, centuries. But uh, let's put it that way. There never was much love uh, lost between Armenians Armenian Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Azerbaijanis being Turkic people, so as you might understand, there was always a friction. And while, uh, uh, for example, Azerbaijan was extremely internationalist in terms of diasporas which lived there, especially Baku, huge Russian Armenian Jewish diasporas, uh, Armenia was almost always almost mono-ethnic state. I believe uh, even today there is something like 10,000 Russians living in uh, Yerevan, and it's not much more than, uh, much less than it was in Soviet times. Uh, Armenia was extremely mono-ethnic; it wasn't internationalist republic, and there was uh, this uh, uh, relatively well about 100,000 or so of Azeris, ethnic Azeris, who lived in Armenia, and they were cleansed basically. And that initiated a huge issue with uh, atrocity in uh, Sungait, and then, of course, the whole, uh, uh, basically, floodgates opened after that. And already you mentioned, it was the start of the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, and it was, it was quite a bit what initiated the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, because Gorbachev and the center in Moscow, it was a bunch of the incompetent people who couldn't deal with mowing the lawn, alone anywhere, let alone running the country, and it completely went out of control. And both sides bear responsibilities for what have happened. What made Azeris advance so decisively against Armenia? Were the Azeris aided by Turkey or by another country? What about Israeli involvement? Wasn't drone warfare part of this war? Uh, drone warfare was part of that war, and Turkey played, uh, and again, don't forget, uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan have a funny relations in the sense that uh, they say, I believe, one nation to different countries or something to this effect, okay? Albeit uh, religiously, Azeris pri primarily Shiites and closer to Iran in this respect, and actually the largest uh, Azeri diaspora lives, guess what, in Iran. They have even their, uh, what is called their three provinces, which are generally known as uh, Northern Azerbaijan in Iran. And just to give you an example, uh, former president of uh, Iran, Ahmadinejad, he was Azeri by nationality. So, but uh, the issue here is that uh, Turkey are very close, Turkey, Turks are very close to Azeris in terms of language. Definitely, there is a lot of commonality, and in terms of their view of the Caucasus. And Turkey played a role in helping Azeris to uh, basically develop their own CONOPs, which is concept of operations, 
and drones were the part of it, but they were not as large part of it as many people assume. What, what many people forget, of course, is the fact that Russia, in the last few years, sold more than $3 billion worth of advanced weaponry to Azerbaijan. Practically all tank force, all air force, and a lot of air defense force in Azerbaijan are Russian-made. And their main role in defeat of uh, Armenia, uh, not Armenia, but Nagorno-Karabakh militia or whatever you call it, was played by the, what we would call the variety of artillery means from classic barrel artillery to m multiple uh, launch rocket systems. And that was a decisive factor which basically wiped out the uh, Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh. And of course, uh, as always, people watch TV, they watch the YouTube, those, you know, uh, Shots and you know frames with those Bayraktar and Anka unmanned aerial vehicles or drones by Turks also make a good uh, visuals you know, but primarily it was Azerbaijani uh, tank force and artillery which pretty much did the deal you know. Why did Russia recuse itself from this war? Oh, very simple. Uh, because of the radically Russophobic policies of Pashinyan. And Russia simply let it go. Of course, Russia stepped in when it was needed. But do not forget also another important part which many people do not understand. Pashinyan is rabidly Russophobic, and everything what was happening prior to this, despite the Armenia being the member of the uh, collective security organization, uh, is the fact that uh, Putin and President of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, are very good friends. And uh, Vladimir Putin was a very good friend with uh, Gidar Aliyev, the former late first president of Azerbaijan. They were very good friends. So there is a personal factor there too. But in general, uh, I think so Russia and Putin and his team concluded that let Azerbaijan take some territory which they are entitled to. And that might help not only to put Pashinyan into the appropriate, you know, uh, uh, position, but also maybe resolve those tensions around, or at least ease those tensions around Nagorno-Karabakh. And actually, this was achieved. In this latest war, it looks like the Armenian leadership simply abandoned Karabakh to its fate, that a passive Armenian defense was a constant tactic, that Pashinian had jailed the pre-2018 leaders of Armenia, and that Shusha, the second largest city in Nagorno-Karabakh, was simply handed over. This was the assessment of an article posted by a Russian website, Vizgliad. Have you heard similar claims? And what do you make of this assessment? Um, CLAD is a kind of, um, uh, it's a news aggregator. It's really, it doesn't produce good uh, uh, analysis to start with. So it's probably one of the versions, you know. You have said that the trouble in Nagorno-Karabakh has a lot to do with Dashnaks and the Armenian diaspora in France and the United States. What are Dashnaks or the Armenian Revolutionary Federation? Well, they are essentially socialist revolutionaries, and they are a nationalist party of Armenia. 
they are activists, but in, in the end, they are Armenian nationalists. And the fierce nationalists said that. There is, a, as always, Armenians have a very serious nationalistic uh, instinct, so to speak. And it's understandable, especially after what those people went through. Because uh, Armenian uh, genocide is the original Holocaust. But, uh, as I said, pe- people are different. Nations are different. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martyanov. Today's show, The Caucasus Conflict and Global Trends. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I've read that prior to World War One, Armenians were concentrated in eastern Anatolia and occupied a protected place in Ottoman society. The United States recently recognized the Armenian genocide during World War One. Why is the U.S. now acknowledging this genocide? What are the political ramifications of the recognition of the genocide of the Armenian people? Uh, very simple. Turkey. Do not forget that prior to Erdogan, Turkey had several uh, military coups, which were basically a continuation of the secular and Western orientation of Turkey, which happened to be NATO member and which happened to provide the largest military contingent in all of NATO. So as you might understand, including the bases in Incherlik and other bases around Turkey, Turkey was a very valuable NATO member. And United States didn't want to spoil this type of relations because Turkey also provided a significant geopolitical pressure on the uh, Southern Soviet Union. This was a serious, serious geopolitical fact. But since Erdogan and uh, the events which happened in Turkey in the last five years, and essentially a removal of the pro-Western element, and reorientation of Turkish uh, foreign policy away from the United States, uh, suddenly declaring, uh, basically in recognizing the uh, Armenian genocide, were the costs of this recognition were not as high today as they would have been 10 or 15 years ago if the United States would have done so. And so seeing how Turkey is beginning its own play, both with Russia and Eurasian integration, United States deemed it uh, possible to recognize basically a very well-established historical fact of massacre, uh, of a horrendous massacre of Armenians by Ottoman Empire. So, and that is why United States uh, did it as also their uh, warning to Turkey not to play too much into the Eurasian or Russian hands. And that's why this has been recognized. Russia, on the other hand, and it has nothing to do with just Armenian diaspora, Russia, Russian army was the one who was uh, freeing Armenians, you know, in World War One from this horror. Uh, Russians always recognized that Armenians have been massacred on the industrial scale, and it was uh, recognized as Armenian genocide. You mentioned to me that Armenia is the most Russophobic nation after Ukraine and Georgia in the former USSR. What has led to this Russophobia, particularly in Armenia? Is it logical or illogical, in your opinion? Um, 
It's illogical in many respects, but we have to be very specific. It's not the whole Armenia, but many in Armenian elites are Russophobic. And many of them hail not from, uh, let's say, uh, Russian background. They hail from the foreign Armenian diasporas. So it is a very kind of conflicting situation. On the common sense, everyday uh, activity with Armenians, you would, ne- would not necessarily feel it. But uh, Armenian policies of the last few years, especially with Pashinyan, grow rapidly Russophobic. If Armenia is anti-Russian and the U.S. has its second largest embassy in Yerevan, why would the U.S. allow Armenia to be defeated by Azerbaijan in this latest war? Well, the United States is not omnipresent. It, uh, first, there is one thing that the United States uh, cannot do at all. It cannot get into Armenia in any military kinetic way because Armenia proper, is the member of the common security organization of the former number of the former states. And uh, any military intervention into Armenia would be considered as the attack on the whole union, so to speak, uh, organization, and Russia would interfere. So if that is out of the question. Secondly, the United States simply doesn't have resources to do that. And uh, this are major two factors which define that. Plus, again, as has been stated many times before, United Nations recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as the part of Azerbaijan. So United States cannot do anything about it, except through the means of influence, political influence, uh, NGOs, all kinds of other non-direct strategies. Militarily, there is no way United States can do anything about it. What does the defeat of Armenia in this latest war mean for the Russian Federation overall? Oh, I think so. Uh, um, The very fact that Russia now has the permanent presence with the peacekeepers in this area, that means that some tensions will eventually be reduced, and that means more stability. Now, Andre, I know that um, you wanted to talk about the global economic situation and specifically with regard to American inflation. And I'm assuming you're talking about the inflation of the dollar. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct because today Vladimir Putin, uh, in one of the rarest uh, direct statements, not just he didn't accuse, he just stated practically obvious fact of which I wrote a number of books and I write nonstop that the main expert of the United States today, as it was for the last 15, 20 years, is inflation. It's not technology, it's not, uh, you know, software or whatever it is. It is inflation. And of course, American inflation is much higher than it is usually uh, reported. And what happens? United States begins to turn on the printing press and all this inflation is being exported outside to the world, considering the fact that uh, of dollar being their uh, main reserve currency, it obviously has an effect. In effect, what Vladimir Putin said today that 
de-dollarization, which already was ongoing for some time, will continue and will continue on on the accelerated at accelerated rate. And uh, that was the one of the really more stringent and forward statements by Putin in the last uh, few months. Well, how would you say the inflation of the American dollar is affecting the global economy? Now, obviously, it's Americans within the United States are affected. How does it affect the global economy? I know all these other countries have all these dollars, right? Are they just worthless? Yeah, exactly. So the United States needs has a two ways of financing its uh, uh, budget deficit, which is horrendous. And one of them is to basically uh, put it under control and uh, implement a stringent uh, monetary means to control the budget deficit. And that will include, of course, cutting down expenses, which the United States cannot afford to do. So the second one is, of course, print money. And as with any printing of money, and especially uh, considering the fact that United States uh, and U.S. dollar is a reserve currency, the inflation which uh, originates with it is basically pushed out, pushed outside of the United States, although even inside the United States we are beginning to feel the effects of it right now. And they manifest themselves in a variety of ways, from uh, incredibly high and continuously rising uh, real estate prices to the prices of food and so on. The world outside, and especially the world with the smaller and vulnerable economies, but who are dependent on dollar for their uh, economic activity, international economic activity, they begin to be affected really badly. So basically, the, what the United States would have, have experienced with the high, higher inflation, it basically moves out to other people, and other people become more poor because of that. Yes, I guess you're referring to these foreign countries which have dollarized economies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the idea about dollarization of the global trade. It is also the reason why so much, it's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the major reasons why uh, the catastrophic the industrialization of the United States have happened, has happened, and practically all, most of the productive economy has been moved out elsewhere, to China, to Southeast Asia, to uh, name it, Mexico, to uh, Argentina, Brazil, uh, you know, United States basically de-industrialized itself because of that. Now, you just mentioned that there were two things that the U.S. ought to do to curb inflation, which would be to cut expenses and, of course, to stop printing so much money. But it seems to me that the U.S. government isn't doing either one of those things. They're doing just the opposite. Because they don't have a choice. Uh, they cannot cut on their uh, social commitments, be that, uh, you know, uh, pensions, be that welfare or unemployment security. They just cannot do that because it will create a complete political mayhem in the United States. They also cannot cut the Pentagon's spending, which is out of control. 
because that will create many unhappy campers in the military industrial complex, and that means automatically many unhappy campers on the Capitol Hill. So uh, what are you going to do? Well, you can print money. You print them until you can. But it's already nearing the end. One of the reasons being, and that is why such a rabid uh, Russophobia and basically hysterical destroyed relations towards Russia because uh, Russia is leading the way on the de-dollarization because you cannot send carrier battle group there and convince Russians not to do that because Russians will sink this carrier battle group or well, how many you send it to them. So you basically cannot coerce number of the countries anymore to not de-dollarize. And that's what Russia and China are doing. And you say the end is uh, getting near. What is the end going to look like? Do you have any idea? Well, I have some ideas. Uh, and again, don't quote me on that. These are my uh, thoughts that fairly, uh, I'm not pretending to be a know-it-all guy, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, it is the ability to live within the means. America still retains a considerable economy, but... Right now, the United States has been deindustrialized so badly that I do not see how the return of the productive jobs, which provide for the main products we use every day, can happen. But other than that, yeah, you have to live within means. And that's going to be hard. That's going to, well, for 1%, it's not going to be hard they will feel just fine. But the main burden of living within means will fall obviously on the majority of the Americans who will have no jobs or well-paying jobs and who will not have enough income to sustain the standard of living which was uh, sustained for the last 30 years by non-stop borrowing. It was dead. So in this case, nothing good but hopefully we will uh, overcome this in the long run without too, too many major political and uh, social upheavals. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martyanov. Today's show, The Caucasus Conflict and Global Trends. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the other very important uh, I guess I could call it an event taking place very recently, the international MAKS, or MAX 2021 air show in Russia. Now, you know a lot about this air show and its implications. Could you talk about this air show, MAX 2021? Yes, uh, MAX, uh, it's basically an exhibition. And it's international exhibition where many international manufacturers of aerospace products come in, including combat aviation. Just to give you an example, a uh, Russian um, helicopter team was accompanied by Indian Air Force helicopter team, team and they put uh, on a wonderful show this time. You know, there's always some kind of highlight moments. But obviously there... Um, it is what is happening in the uh, pavilions and behind the scenes. What kind of uh, 
contracts are signed, which really matters. And Russia, this time, uh, she stunned the world, not only by already what everybody knows that Russia uh, is getting its new narrow-body MS-21 airliner uh, in the serial production, but with the fact that uh, fifth generation new uh, single-engine fighter has been revealed. They call it Checkmate, some call it SU-75, but it is clear that the fact that such a aircraft, combat aircraft with such capabilities have been revealed so unexpectedly, it was a stunner, honestly. And it's an outstanding aircraft already by what is being uh, told and what has been revealed about it. And uh, the fact that Russia developed it within the last two years, uh, granted, it has a lot of commonalities with already serial uh, fifth-generation heavy fighter SU-57. It is absolutely stunning. That means that uh, Russia put the, the process of design, research and development, and manufacturing of such aircraft pretty much uh, on the uh, conveyor. And that is in itself a revelation. Now, are you saying that uh, Russia was demonstrating both military and civilian aircraft at this show to uh, sell it to foreign companies? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Do not forget that uh, uh, Russia is the second largest seller of the military technology in the world after the United States. And if you look at, for example, uh, India's Air Force or Algier Air Force or even Egypt's Air Force, you will see many, many Russian combat airplanes there. And uh, this latest one, the fighter, uh, the reason it was called Checkmate, because you get uh, basically modular design and you get enormous combat capabilities for the fraction of the price of the American uh, or French uh, military technology. And obviously the interest was immediately expressed, apart from the fact that Russia sells uh, SU-35, for example, to Egypt and Algiers, and there are many uh, basically takers of Russian uh, military technology. Now, this MAX 2021 air show that took place within Russia was an international air show. Did the United States participate in it? No, not this time. Oh, I'm sure there are some uh, representatives of some uh, American firms, but obviously it was nothing compared to like it was in the 2010s when the United States would send uh, both, uh, you know, uh, acrobatic teams like Blue Angels or, uh, I don't, I'm not sure about Thunderbirds if they were there, but they certainly would send even such legendary aircraft as B-52s and they would participate fully. Nowadays, obviously, as you know, with the uh, relations being absolutely at the bottom, Russian-American relations being at the bottom and being completely broken, uh, there was, there was no such presence there. Sadly, because it's, always very interesting and important to have the United States being such an important aerospace uh, superpower to be there. But uh, it wasn't this time. So, but there were many international participants there nonetheless, including Airbus. Now, with regard to the newly developed Russian aircraft, be it military or civilian, does it perform, would you consider it 
superior to other aircraft that's on the market? Um, there is nothing really at this stage which really compares to something like uh, Su-57, which is the latest Russian uh, fifth-generation fighter. And in general, and that's what I was writing for many years now, uh, the technological gap between, say, Russia, military technological gap between Russia and the rest of the world grows. The combat aircraft of the quality and the uh, capabilities of such as Su-35 or Su-57 are just absolutely unique. Anybody can say that, oh, there is F-22. F-22, American F-22, is the past generation. Yeah, I think so. We're looking at the supreme military capability being revealed for the last few years. Now, is Russian-manufactured aircraft, is it more cost-effective for buyers than, say, U.S. aircraft? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. For example, the uh, average, uh, I, I, I will admit now the fact that F-35 is a, a technological disaster. It's a, uh, it's a plane which cannot really fly properly and can fly, for example, supersonic only in short bursts, otherwise it uh, really have technical issues. But uh, it is still horrendously expensive aircraft. It uh, goes for around, uh, roughly around 90 to $100 million a pop. For a very uh, moderate, to put it, uh, modest, uh, real combat capability. So the new checkmate, or whatever they call it nowadays, uh, when it flies first in two, 20, uh, in two years, it's going to be between 25 and 30 million dollars with the capabilities which are not only comparable but much better than of F 35. So uh, this is just one comparison. And Russia selling uh, superb Su-35 still makes a killing, selling it twice uh, for, for about $60 million a pop compared to F-35, and F-35 doesn't look that good compared to Su-35. What will be the expert version of Su-57? I don't know. I know it's going to be still less than F-35. And Su-57 is, uh, I mean, it's the supreme uh, heavy fighter today in the world. And, of course, the F-35 that you're describing is the American fighter yeah, jet. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, basically, there are so many about it have been said and written, and it's being written as we talk, that it's a complete failure, that I do not need to go deep into that. It was the American U.S. Air Force and many military people who admitted that the plane is a disaster. And it's extremely expensive. Well, it is extremely expensive. Although not as expensive as, for example, a French uh, Rafale being sold uh, to India, which is obviously a corruption scheme. And it comes out, I believe, in the end for India at $216 million for fourth generation aircraft. It's simply ridiculous. It's a decent aircraft. Rafale is a great aircraft, but it's definitely not worth $260 million. And this is the French aircraft you're saying is overpriced. Oh, yeah, with India. I believe there is a huge scandal and corruption investigation is going on right now. So, yeah, it's uh, military business is like that. But overall, how would you assess 
Russian, the new Russian aircraft, both military and civilian. Have the Russians come out with a new uh, passenger jetliner? Yes, it is MS-21, and it is already, there are few of them which are in serial production. Eventually, Russia will be producing 72 of them each year. It is extremely competitive with the uh, latest versions of Airbus, single-aisle air, commercial aircraft, and it's definitely going to remove pretty much most of the foreign competition from the internal market uh, in Russia. Oh, I see. So you're of the opinion then that the the new Russian passenger jet airliners are mostly going to be sold internally within the Russian Federation. Oh, no, that's the first phase. It's absolutely because Russia wants her own planes. But both planes, for example, like Sukhoi Superjet, which is smaller uh, aircraft and uh, called the regional, and uh, obviously MS-21, they are extremely competitive on any level, including international. And they will be offered internationally. And with their choice, for example, of engines, they can go with the Russian-made brand-new PD-14 engine, or they can go with the uh, Pratt & Whitney for those customers who will want that. And it's going to be a huge uphill battle, obviously, because Airbus is not going to give up market shares that easily. So neither will Boeing, despite the fact that Boeing has some huge issues with uh, 737 MAX and it is in need of the new narrow-body aircraft you know, for a long time. Will they develop it? I don't know. Right. And then, just to sum up, what, what, what would you say about the new uh, Russian military aircraft that was modeled at the MAX 2021 air show? Uh, it's sensational, let's put it this way just without, you know, unnecessary uh, humbleness, it is sensational. It is being discussed and people just, especially when you uh, have the modular design and you have capabilities which you can get for three three times less than the price of F-35. It, is, it was absolute stunner, honestly. Now, Andre, you have written two books on the military, Losing Military Supremacy, the myopia of American strategic planning, and the real revolution in military affairs. How would you sum up these two books? These first two are kind of precursor for the third one, which is called Disintegration, which is, of course, a startling title. It's about the American military mythology, which is not supported by the actual facts of life. And uh, the ideas behind those books, including the third one, were to warn people from making a horrendous miscalculation and mistake by showing that any idea of even a conflict with Russia, which some uh, segments of American uh, public and American political elites think about could result in a devastating defeat of the United States and that could uh, easily spiral out of the control. Andre Martinov, thank you so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure.
I've been speaking with Andre Martinov. Today's show has been The Caucasus Conflict and Global Trends. Andre Martinov is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He was born in Baku in the Soviet Union, graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy, and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-1990s, he moved to the United States, where he worked as the laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group. He is a frequent blogger on the U.S. Naval Institute blog. He is the author of Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, and his latest, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. His books are available at ClarityPress.com. Visit his blog at SmoothieX12.blogspot.com. That's S-M-O-O-T-H-I-E-X, the number 12.blogspot.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. You did.